This podcast is supported by CoinKite, the one-stop shop for everything you need to secure, use, and express your obsession for Bitcoin. The MK4, a new version of the hugely popular cold card hardware wallet, is out now with lots of new features for helping you to secure your Bitcoin. If you like to keep track of block time or keep track of the SATS USD exchange rate, the Block Clock Mini is the way to do it. And the gang at CoinKite have recently released the Tap Signer, which is an NFC-enabled card which holds a private key, allowing you to separate your keys from your wallets while still allowing for super easy transaction signing. To learn more about all their awesome gear and stay up to date on their new products, visit CoinKite.com. Ryan, how are you? Thanks for joining well, me. John, I'm doing great, man. I just uh, I just finished a jujitsu session, so that's why I'm wearing the hat. And uh, it'd be kind of gross if uh, that, this is about as presentable as I could get uh, at 10:30 in the morning here. So I'm sorry about that. But no problem, dude. That's that's hilarious. I just finished one myself, which is why I got a bit of a shiner going. You got a little on shiner. And, yeah, <laughs> that's good, man. How long yeah. have you been training for? Uh, coming up on a year. It'll be oh, a year nice. November. Awesome, and, man. Um, how about you? Um, I started when my oldest daughter was born. She's eight, almost nine. So I'm, oh, coming, wow. I, I, I had done kickboxing for a long time. Um, and I trained with high level kickboxers for years. And so then I, I went to an MMA gym was, was doing the sparring days with the MMA guys. Like, I don't know if you know who Dan Henderson is, um, sure. but, uh, I UFC I, fanatic. So, yeah. Okay. So, so I was a training partner for Dan with Dan Henderson for like his veto Vitor Belfort fight. No Michael Bis- the, the second Michael Bisping fight, I was, a uh, I was, and when he was training to fight, he didn't, he never fought John Jones, um, but he was scheduled to fight John Jones and that fight fell out. And so I was mimicking John Jones for him, but just the striking side. So back a long, long time ago, I would, I would go in and do rounds with these high level MMA guys, but I was just doing the striking days. And so I thought, Oh, I can do MMA too. So I went and did two amateur fights and just got my butt grappled to the ground the entire time. Cause every, every striker thinks, Oh, I'm, if somebody tries to take me down, I'm just going to throw a knee and knock him out. Right. That is not easy. You can, <laughs> that is very hard to do. So I was getting taken down by purple belts and just getting out pointed on the ground. And so then I fell in love with jujitsu and I've been training. Yeah. Almost nine years now in jujitsu. I'm a brown belt. I'm a two stripe brown belt in jujitsu now. And, uh, I just, I, I was out for a month. I dislocated three of my ribs. Um, and so this is like my third day training back and, uh, yeah, happy to be back. <laughs> That's awesome, man. I, um, you know, it's, I, I trained a lot of, um, well, intermittently, a lot of Muay Thai prior to doing any jujitsu and by mostly by virtue of the fact that I was either in Thailand or very close. And I used to like, and go and kind of vacation and train at the same time, but you know, I've, I've kind of fallen in love with jujitsu. I mean, it's so cerebral. There's so much you can learn every time, uh, you can go hard with probably taking less damage than going hard striking. You know, that mm-hmm. was <clears throat> cause you want to go hard. Cause there's just like that impulse to, to go hard. But when you're, when you do it and it's striking, you know, it can, it's easy to kind of uh, hurt yourself. And I enjoy that aspect about jujitsu and, you know, of course, all the other reasons, the great workout, the practicality of it. But I mean, it, it can be, I'm finding it can be a little bit rough on the body, you know? So mm-hmm. I'm trying to get, get myself used to the ways in which it's rough. And of course, trying to make sure your training partners are are careful and you mm-hmm. granting that same respect so that you can both train in advance and, and not get too banged up. Yeah. But yeah, I've been, I've been loving it. You must've, tr- you must've competed uh, in kickboxing to be at that level and, and be training with those guys. No, no, I just, I'd been training for a long time. Yeah. So I, I'd never even, I, 
I always was, you know, planning to do a Muay Thai match. And by the time I was serious enough to do a Muay Thai match, I thought, oh, MMA, <laughs> MMA is the route to go. Um, right. And it was just, it was, I mean, UFC one proved what my thinking was, was wrong. I mean, I was doing this and <laughs> I was trying to reinvent the wheel in 2014 or whatever, when I was going out to do MMA, but in 1993, the UFC already proved that striker is going to get out grappled, but yeah. we're just, you know, we're, I think maybe it's a little bit of hubris or something like that. And uh, I thought I could, I, Oh, I'm the exception. Nope. I'm not, I was not the exception. And, uh, but it was a, it was a big wake up moment for me of like, man, the, the ground grappling arts are integrally important, you know? And I think there's a higher, there's a hierarchy. There's like a pyramid to martial arts. I mean, once two grapplers, you know, nullify each other, then yeah, whoever has the striking on top of it is, is going to win a fight. You know, you know, there's advanced levels to it and things like that. Um, but man, there's just, like you said, there's so much nuance to it. I, I, the team, I, uh, so I do a lot of competing in jujitsu now. Um, but the team I, I, I'm on, the, uh, it's called Checkmat for people that don't know jujitsu. Checkmat's a pretty popular uh, team. But like you said, it's this very cerebral thing. And that's where this name Checkmat comes from. It's almost like it's human chess. It's this, this idea of trying to think three steps ahead of yeah. your opponent, seeing where they're going. And honestly, I mean, it's a lot of what I write about in my book. And we'll, we'll get into that, um, you know, the Bitcoin stuff. But I think that's a lot of what Bitcoiners think about. We're trying to think about like what, yes, I understand that the narrative is this, or the fed is doing X, Y, and Z, but what are they really doing? Like, what is this setting up three or four moves down the road? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it, that's why I think there's such a, uh, a correlation between <laughs> jujitsu people and Bitcoiners or jujitsu people and, and freedom lovers. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting, um, correlation that happens, um, you know, between the mats and economy. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And I think there's an interesting parallel too, where, Part of jujitsu, and again, like I'm a beginner effectively, but it seems to me that part of the approach is like you have to find the pockets, not, not only just thinking steps ahead and setting those traps and stuff, but you have to find the pockets mm. where you can be calm and relaxed, where you're not just frantically going yeah. crazy, right? And so like you find a space and you're like, okay, I'm safe here. Now what's going on? What are the attack vectors? What are the opportunities? Okay, move forward, find a safe space. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you just keep doing that. I mean, again, like it's it's kind of a parallel for how Bitcoiners and anyone who's trying to see themselves through these, you know, crazy tumultuous times that we're living in kind of has to have that approach, right? Not be overwhelmed by the chaos, but mm -hmm. also not shoot your wad early, right? You've got to find <laughs> a, great, a way to kind way of to put it. mediate the chaos in these fits and starts where you're preserving as much energy as possible. And then when there's an opportunity, you make a move to advance your position. And I think that's partially what we're all doing. Yeah, that was beautifully said. <laughs> I'm gonna write that down. <laughs> um, all right, so tell me, tell me about your Bitcoin story, and we'll 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 get into uh, what you've been working on and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so my, my Bitcoin story is is very much I feel like like everybody's. We heard about it early on, thought it was a scam, uh, and then and disregarded it for a period of time, and then came back to it. And it's usually the second or third time you come back to Bitcoin. For me, the first time I ever heard about Bitcoin, I think it was 2012. And, uh, I, I was, I never watched college football, but I was watching college football, like Saturday game day. And it was right before the game, you know, they have the announcers, the guys talking, you know, breaking down the game right before it happens. They have, they have the audience right behind them. And, uh, there was a kid in the background, a college student, and he had a big sign with a QR code on it. And it said, Hey mom, send Bitcoin. That's all it said. And, <laughs> uh, and I'm like, well, awesome. send Bitcoin. What's that? And so, uh, 
kind of forgot about it, watched the game. A few days later, I'm like, you know what? What was that Bitcoin thing? So I Google it. Turned out that kid had like $24,000 worth of Bitcoin sent to him on that weekend because the Bitcoin forums back then were blown up. Because When Bitcoin was this? Was so, Sorry. This 2012. This 2012, is 2012. Okay. One. Yeah. So Bitcoin's right. so small at that time that all the headlines on the, the crypto websites were Bitcoin was on ESPN, not like right, right, not like right. they were featuring it on a segment, but like it made it in the background. Like that's how like low key Bitcoin was at the time. So I'm like, wow, this is really stupid. Like this is so dumb. It was just this little thing that the QR code and the, this guy got money sent to him, didn't really understand it. And then I had some friends about a year later that were talking to me about it. And so I kind of approached it as, as more of a skeptic. I, I came, said all the things that you say, you know, Bitcoin must be a Ponzi scheme. Um, you know, it's, it's a pyramid scheme, you know, all the, all those types of things that, um, it's get rich quick or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's going to be a rug pull. And so in my study, it, it really forces you to go down the rabbit hole of economics. You have to study money, monetary history. You have to study economic history, not, you don't have to do, study those things to use Bitcoin. And I think that's the, that's the big barrier. A lot of people that are coming to Bitcoin, like, oh, I don't want to have to, you know, read books from Mises or <laughs> Frederick Hayek or something like that in order to learn Bitcoin. You don't have to understand that stuff to use Bitcoin, but for those that are intellectually curious and we're in those early stages, I think it is important for some of us, the kind of the early pioneers. I'm not, we're not pioneers now, but, but like the people that early on, when you're learning about a new technology, it is in, important to understand the nuances so that we can pass those nuances kind of distilled down to the next generation of people. But anyways, it was, uh, it, all that study was kind of intriguing me, but it was this one light bulb moment was uh, Andreas Antonopoulos was on the Joe Rogan experience. And the one thing that he said that caught my attention when he basically said he was talking about digital scarcity and I'd heard digital, I'd heard people talk about digital scarcity, but it never clicked. But what he said was in the history of computer science up until 2009, until Satoshi Nakamoto created Bitcoin and blockchain, there was no way to make a digital thing scarce. And so kind of the way he reiterated that was, imagine you go into a Word document, you type out a word, you can copy and paste it infinitely, right? And this became actually, there was a monetary thing. You can see it very clearly in the music industry. What happened when music went from cassettes and CDs and records to MP3 files? It disrupted the music industry because all of a sudden you got these websites like Napster and LimeWire that you could take digital content that had monetary value, right? Songs had a lot of monetary value, but they lost all monetary value as soon as they went digital because you could replicate them endlessly. And so how do you have a digital economy and digital money if anybody, so right now the federal reserve can print money and endlessly infinitely. But what if everybody could do that? Like if you had digital money, literally anybody with a bank account would be able to copy and paste their own. So we'd have, you know, a billion federal reserves out there. That'd be exponentially worse than having one single, uh, you know, federal reserve. So it you mean was like this, other I, cryptocurrencies sounds like you're describing, <laughs> you know what, huh? There's almost uh, yeah, there's almost some poetic, uh, justice to that, um, yeah. I mean, so that's, I mean, that's kind of what people are trying to do, right. Create their own infinite, um, things. So, but with Bitcoin, there's this way to digitally cap that, right. It was the first time in computer science that we were able to did to cap something digital. And that was kind of the light bulb moment for me. And what was that? That was 2013, 14, 13, 20, 14. maybe really early, early 14, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I remember those days when Andreas was on Joe, cause I started paying attention around that time as well. And like, I also remember, I think cause the show was live back then. And so they, they actually, I think Andreas did like a demonstration. He got, he, he generated like a, 
an address for Joe. And like, as the show was streaming, they were like, you know, anyone who's got Bitcoin, just send it in. I should watch. Yeah. It would be interesting because I, I don't yeah. recall how much was sent in, but it would probably be a lot in today's exchange rate. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, Andreas was, was so uh, great back in the day and in, in how he, how he so clearly and calmly and methodically and logically, uh, described, you know, what was going on with Bitcoin and, and helped educate people. And I, I know he drew in a ton of people, especially people that came in in, in, the, in the couple of years that followed that. You know, now mm. there's so many content creators and so many podcasts and so many books and so many videos that there's a lot of touch points now. But uh, back then, I mean, he was a, a massive funnel for, for early people coming in. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm assuming that started the rabbit hole journey. How did it, how did it develop from there? So I think like a lot of people, you, uh, well, I mean, maybe people that have a good reputation, I, I, I still don't fall like fully in the Bitcoin maximalist category. I think Bitcoin's the only sound money um, in terms of digital sound money, but I, I, I make an argument for, you know, treating other blockchains as maybe speculative tech, but without going down that kind of nuanced thing yet, yet what a lot of people do is they learn about Bitcoin, they get into Bitcoin first, then they see all the other returns that other friends are getting on, on altcoins. And so then you become intrigued. It's like, wow, if I would have invested in Litecoin, you know, because people are thinking of it not as a technology, they're thinking of it as investment. Um, and so you see something, you know, early on Litecoin shot up, then people that bought Ethereum early on, it shot up. And so you're seeing kind of this FOMO of people buying these other altcoins. And so like anybody else, I started to try to learn more about altcoins, Ethereum, and then, you know, every branch down that chain, and I even started working in 2018 from 2018 until last year, I worked for a small blockchain project called Athenium. And so that whole, the whole core of, of that project was to try and decentralize learning content. And it was this kind of nebulous idea that I thought was interesting at first, but like a lot of Bitcoin purists, they go down that rabbit hole and then they come back to Bitcoin. And so I think that I, to me, it kind of it reverts back to the mean. And so as for a lot of people, we need to go through that journey, right? We need to kind of study and learn about the pitfalls and potential ups and downs of what blockchain is versus what, you know, specifically Bitcoin is. And for me, it was, uh, I, I still think that there can be value in, in using, um, blockchains for other, for other things outside of money. But I think the biggest and most important thing is, is Bitcoin. I think that's at the core of it. And so what I saw in my journey working, I was the chief marketing officer for, for that blockchain project. And so we would go and we'd pitch venture capital guys, um, you know, hey, invest in our blockchain project because, you know, it's going to, you're going to be at the cutting edge of, of the Bitcoin or the blockchain re revolution. And they would, uh, we would do this pitch to them. And then at the end of the pitch, so we were pitching all this complicated stuff and they'd say, well, well, what is blockchain? What is Bitcoin? And so we were realizing we were trying to pitch them like level four or five complicated stuff and they wanted just the basics. And so guys that were managing hundreds of millions of dollars, I was realizing pitch after pitch, they don't even understand what Bitcoin is. And so that's why I literally resigned from the project. I'm like going back to first principles, we need to help people understand what the fundamental tenets of this technology are before they're even looking at it as an investment. Because literally guys were coming in ready to send, sign like $10 million checks, not even understanding the fundamental tenets of a technology, just hoping that they could like ride a speculative wave. And I just kind of saw that as detrimental to the space. I mean, it, it's the easiest way to create a, a bubble in the cryptocurrency, the larger cryptocurrency space that like can have this, um, 
this almost like contagion effect that could affect Bitcoin. And I don't want collapses in other spaces and, and, and you know, other blockchain projects to affect the reputation of, a, of what I think is a sound form of money in Bitcoin. So that's why my focus is kind of reverted back to just Bitcoin, <laughs> Bitcoin evangelism. That's the title of my book is, is talking about the fundamental tenets of this technology and why they matter in terms of money. And so I have a few questions there, but I guess first, like, so you decided to write this book. When did you start writing it? I when started, did it, come out? it came out two months ago, June. Yeah. So almost three months ago now. And it's called Bitcoin evangelism. Mm -hmm. Yes. And how long is it? It's almost 400 pages. Holy shit. <laughs> Well, can you, I mean, hit me with it a little bit. Like, give I mean, the that's a, uh, yeah, give me, give me a summary. <laughs> okay. Well, I've got the audio book coming out. So for anybody that doesn't want to read 400 pages, we literally just completed the audio book today. So, um, and the guy that right. narrates it does a great job and he's a, he's a purple belt in jujitsu, by the way, I didn't even find that out until after we uh, did the project. I'm like, Oh, we got another kindred spirit here, but mm -hmm. um, in a nutshell, kind of re re reverting back to what I was saying is so many people think of Bitcoin as a, or just cryptocurrencies in general as an investment first. And so I have so many friends that I talk to and it's like, oh, you bought Ethereum, you bought Bitcoin. Great. Like, why'd you buy it? And the, the answer you get 99% of the time is, oh, I bought it because it's going to go up in value, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. You're speculating. Okay. That's your right to do that. But I think that we're at the convergence, we're at, we're at this point in history where things are aligning, where we have the first ever like really sound form of money that has this digital component to it. I think that's really important. So the first half of the book is making the pitch for Bitcoin as a technology. The second half of the book is like, okay, well, if you're going to go down, if you're convinced that this works as a technology, maybe here's some of the things that you consider if you're going to be putting your money into it, um, if you're going to be treating it as investment, if, if you're a company and you're going to use it for your treasury reserves, right? Because you're worried about, um, you know, inflation over the long term. like Bitcoin as a short-term inflation hedge. I don't think, I think that that's not a good idea, but as a long-term inflation hedge, I think there's a, a strong case for Bitcoin um, for companies and treasury reserves and things like that. So there is an investable component to it. I think that's a, that's a big part of it, but you need to understand the fundamental tenets. What, you know, what makes for sound money, first of all, okay, I think Bitcoin fits that bill. And I try, there's a whole chapter devoted to why Bitcoin works as sound money. Um, there's a whole chapter as why, why Bitcoin actually has inherent value. You'll hear the Peter Schiff's of the world talk about Bitcoin, oh, it has no, it has no inherent value. I can use gold because I can make electronics out of it, or I can make a bowl or a spoon or something out of gold, but you can't use Bitcoin for anything. Um, and there's, I have a, I have a chapter devoted to why Bitcoin in fact does have inherent value. Why does it? Yeah. Setting you up for that one. <laughs> well, like I spent my early years of like my adulthood in sales. And so the first thing you, you, you learn in sales is you have to ask questions. And so I give it several different answers for why Bitcoin has inherent value and different people are going to want different answers. Like if, if I'm talking to somebody and I have some friends that are pretty, um, you know, pretty influential in the freedom movement, like some people, you know, some, some influencers online that were organizing a lot of rallies over COVID and things like that. When I'm talking to those types of people, if, if I'm on her podcast, I'm not talking about Bitcoin as a, so much as an inflation hedge, although those people are starting to ask questions about that. I'm talking to people about why Bitcoin matters as freedom money, because 
those people are very aware of what happened in Canada at the beginning of this year with the trucker rally. And they know that, you know, they, people raised $10 million to fund, to, to give, uh, what is it? GoFundMe and GoFundMe blocked $10 million of donations. So that was one instance of a third party, a private company blocking transactions. And then even once a, another company popped up, give, send, go said, Hey, we'll, we'll, we'll process those donations and send those to the truckers. Then the Canadian government stepped in and another third party, the Canadian government said, no, anybody that sends donations to these bank accounts, we're going to freeze those bank accounts. We might even, we might even, uh, you know, say that you're funding terrorism. Like we might, they passed the emergencies act. And so laws were enacted very quickly, potentially prosecuting people for donating things. The only things that kept, the only thing that kept the Canadian trucker rally going were, were Bitcoin donations. And there was all sorts of headlines about how, Bitcoin wallets were being seized and things like that by the Canadian government. Not true. That that was that was a few uh, exchange wallets that were maybe frozen or blocked. But we know that software on your phone or software on your computer, you can send Bitcoin and it's not going to get blocked by the government. They have a very difficult time doing that. Um, and so, when I talk to people in the freedom movement, talking about Bitcoin as freedom money is really really important. When you talk to people, um, we have some missionaries from my church that were just over in Poland housing Ukrainian refugees. Um, and so they were, they were working with the women who their husbands were back fighting the war, but then they were in Poland with their children, you know, with all of their stuff, they had all of their stuff. Well, when I'm talking to those people, when I'm talking to the missionaries, I'm like, well, if those refugees had their money in Bitcoin, they were able to take it with them, right? Like they were able to, but their, their Ukrainian bank account doesn't transfer over to Poland, right? And so when I'm talking to missionaries, that are helping with the Ukrainian refugees, that's a completely different pitch to them. And then when I'm talking to the guy in the elevator that needs a 30 second pitch on, you know, why Bitcoin has value, I'll ask him real quick. I'll say, well, wh what do you think the combined market cap of just Visa, MasterCard and uh, Discover are? And they'll say, I don't know, something big. I'm like, well, yeah, the, the market cap of just those. And, and keep in mind, that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of money remittance around the world. But just those three companies are valued at like $700 billion. So at the very least, the, the use case for sending money in the United States is $700 billion. So we know there's an inherent market value to sending value. Now, now let's add in what ACH payments are, what Venmo and PayPal and, and bank transfers and wire transfers, all like there is an inherent value to sending value around the world. And that's provable, that's quantifiable. And so Bitcoin can not only do that, but it can do it without anybody's permission. So you can add on some ex, you know, extra multiple of, of value because Bitcoin is censorship resistance. You have sovereignty over your money. So what extra value does that have? In the, sem, in the same way that digital maps have exponentially more value than paper maps did, right? Paper maps was like a $40 million a year business. Digital maps has it created trillions of dollars worth of new industry, right? Uber, Airbnb, Lyft, DoorDash, none of that exists. Amazon doesn't exist at the scale it does without digital maps, right? So going from paper maps or analog maps to digital maps creates exponentially more value in the same way that we're dealing with a, an analog fiat currency. Well, the, the market cap for companies that transfer fiat currency is $700 billion. But what happens when you have a, a natively digital currency, the market cap for that or the inherent value of that has to be some multiple above and beyond that. So Again, those are kind of the, the tips of those those arguments, but um, yeah, it really depends on who I'm talking to. Well, I think that's the point, right? And I think that's why, you know, certain Austrians and 
people in the Bitcoin space might push back on the inherent value moniker, right? Because they would suggest that all value is subjective. Now, everyone would, would agree that Bitcoin has a ton of potential use cases, and it's those use cases that may or may not be valued by market participants. Right. But I think the reason why potentially we it, it is not beneficial to use that type of language, because that, as you say, like Peter Schiff will, and you know, Peter Schiff knows better. So either he either just has like crazy BDS or he's being disingenuous, but he knows that nothing has inherent value, nothing. It depends on what the individual wants to use it for, what, what their aim is. Right. Uh, but the, I think the problem with that framing is that it's the same framing that like the hardcore socialist communist mm. so collectivist people will use as well to discredit it. Right. And so using the framing of inherent it something having inherent value or not may not be the best way to go. Rather, everyone has different use, use cases for everything. And dependent mm -hmm. upon those use cases, they might value or not value things. And should we not respect everyone for their desire to value or use whatever they desire to value or use? Um, so is there, a re you know, and I, you mentioned the the Austrians a few minutes ago, so I'm sure you're familiar with that argument. Is there a reason why you went with the inherent, you know, moniker in the book? Yeah. Well, so yeah, actually, that <laughs> you're writing out that line of thinking perfectly. So the way that chapter opens is the Austrian answer. So <laughs> it says, "Why does Bitcoin have inherent value?" Well, the Austrians would say that nothing has inherent value; that there's just market value, right? And so. I essentially opened the chapter saying that's for most people, a very unsatisfactory answer. So unless you study Austrian economics, you, you, Austrian, you know, people that study that have great respect for that. Right. I, I respect that's like, that's a great conclusion. What I'm talking about, that's why I kind of referenced that the whole thing about when you're doing sales, right. I don't want to chop, I'm not trying to sell Bitcoin, but, but it's the same concept when I'm trying to teach something, when you're, when you're doing sales, you're teaching somebody about a product or service. Right. So we're doing that same thing with Bitcoin. I'm really relaying it to what people are asking. And so I use the term inherent value because I believe that answers what people are trying to get at, right? Like mm -hmm. if, if- How it might somebody, be valuable to them, you to mean? To them, right. So <clears throat> why does this have inherent value to you? Because again, that's, that's why I'll say, I'll, I'll ask the freedom person, like, would that be valuable? Would that be inherently valuable to you if you were you know, doing a protest and you had no other way to continue your pro protest and get funds in except for through Bitcoin, like that would be inherently valuable to their process, to the things that they do. And so, and may, maybe that language is, it, it lacks some specificity, but what it means to that person is, is very accurate. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's more of the subjective, you know, it is a very subjective value, um, mm. but to that individual, they, they perceive that as inherently valuable, if that makes sense. Because again, Peter Schiff says that all the time, like, well, why is gold valuable? Because I can make electronics out of it because I need electronics to, you know, I need a phone, I need a smartphone. So I need gold, it, you know, to make sure my smartphone works because that's valuable to me. I need to have a smartphone. You're right. That's not the Austrian answer. Austrian answer was like, well, no, you, you've placed a market value on that, yada, yada, yada. But that would, I'm, I guess I'm using the, the broad, the, un, uh, the unlearned version of that question. Because again, Bitcoin evangelism, by the way, isn't talking to people that have studied Austrian economics. Um, I hope that they do someday. But this, the, the working title I had for my book was Bitcoin so that your grandma could understand it. Not, to, not, not meant to be Bitcoin for dummies. It wasn't, it wasn't just to dumb things down, but it was like, how do we talk about things in, a, uh, in just a common, common language? 
it's the book's very conversational. Like the people that have been reading the book, I've been getting really good feedback. It's an Amazon. It's on the, on the Amazon bestsellers list. I think it hit as high as like number seven in the inflation category. So it's cool to be a part of that conversation, but the people that are reading it and that are passing along to their friends, they're saying, wow, this, this felt like I was just, my buddy was talking to me about Bitcoin. So it's meant to just meet people where they're at. And if you think about it in Christian evangelism, like the, what Christians do when they're evangelizing is they're going out and meeting people where they're at, right? Like Jesus used language, you know, cause he was, he was out partying with the sinners and talking to the sinners using their language, not using this. Like he wasn't like the Pharisees who were these really righteous people that had their own language to modern day Christians. We have all these like fancy words that makes the out people on the outside, not want to become Christians. Cause we use words like sanctification and baptism and the gospel, like all these words that sound really weighty. So Christians mm. have gotten away from using this simplistic language to welcome people in. Um, but that's, that's kind of what I wanted to, to grant an homage to was how do we, if we're evangelizing something, how do we use simplistic language? Like people use these terms like inherent value, or um, how do I explain something that isn't in the current language? Like the average person doesn't talk about trustlessness. Well, how do I insert something like trustlessness or something tr being trustless into common language? And so, you know, you got to figure out ways to explain it to somebody. And how do you, how do you explain what a you know, Bitcoin's trustless, like don't trust verify. Okay. I can go look at the ledger and make sure it happens. So there's that component of it, but people get really uncomfortable with like, how do I trust an algorithm with all of my money? I mean, that's probably the number one question I got from, from people that, you know, whether it was family members or people I was consulting with, they're like, how do I trust that? That's like, that's the whole point. You don't have to trust. And so they'll say, well, I would never trust an algorithm with something that important. I said, you trust an algorithm with your life every single day. When was the last time you went through an intersection? And they're like, ah, oh, drove through an intersection on the way over here. Well, do you not understand that when that's, that's, that's a, that's an algorithm. When you're, when North and Southbound have a green light, East and West have a red light. We place a ton of trust in algorithms. We actually place so much trust. We don't even consciously do it. And that's what trustlessness is. It's not the opposite of trust. It's the absence of need for trust because the algorithm just works. And so trying to bring language of these complex terms to regular people, um, the way I say it all the time is I'm one caveman trying to explain Bitcoin to another caveman. That's kind of the, that's kind of the tone of the book. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I can certainly appreciate that you don't want to get bogged down in, you know, the intellectual or academic notions of, Austrian economics and the terminology rather, or at least not initially, because what you're trying to do is just impress upon them that it's very likely to be the case that the one of, or more of the use cases that Bitcoin permits or represents is likely to be of value mm -hmm. to that person. And so, you know, maybe for that reason, you can get away with using something like inherent value. And I think to your point about most people do come into this and they see the gains and they think it's a speculative asset, right? I want to come out of the out of the back of this, I want more fiat is the impression for a lot of people. And cause that's how it's been largely framed in, in the culture. And that's also pe people don't aren't conditioned or, or haven't it's unprecedented to have their unit of account be what's being upgraded, not the nominal amount of the former unit of account that they have. So like, again, the, the unit of account is such a prism through which you see the world and, you know, everything just becomes in relation to that. And this is why Bitcoin is such a paradigmatic shift, because what you're saying is that thing that you use to value all other things and that you, you use to enable yourself in the world and move through the world, i.e. money, 
That thing is what's changing now. And that's the paradigm that's changing. And you want to make sure that you have a capacity to use that new mechanism in the new paradigm and not get left behind effectively. And then of course you go down the rabbit hole, why it's going to be more beneficial and what, you know, all the bad stuff it's going to eradicate and all the good stuff it's going to foster. But that, that shift seems to be such an enormous one because people inevitably have the question like, well, why do I need to change it at all? Why, what's wrong with it? And then you're like, Oh, let me tell you about what's fucking wrong with it. (laughs) Right. But the first, the first step is just being like, or maybe not the first step, but one of the early steps is this is not just about getting more fiat, mm. right? This is about replacing fiat. And as a result, this is not every, everything that, that you do almost is an investment, right? Cause in relation to your future self so that, you know, you could, you could nitpick and say that, but effectively what you're trying to get them to, to realize is that this is a one-way street, right? Like what mm-hmm. you Bitcoin is saving as mm-hmm. is, is so often said, you know, so yeah getting people to realize that that's the game that's afoot here, that you're actually trying to shift over to another system rather than just have another means of taking extra risk in, with your savings, I can imagine is, well, it is difficult because I've tried to do it myself. And I, I suspect is one of the main purposes of you using kind of colloquial, not too academic language in the book. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and, and that's the question I get probably more than any other thing. Um, mostly on the jujitsu, the, the jujitsu mats after practice. That's the number one time that guys sit around and we'll, you know, talk about whatever. And a lot of times when it's a, when it's a bull market, everybody's talking about Bitcoin <laughs> or, or, or the Dogecoin they just bought or whatever it is. And they always ask me, they inevitably turn to me at some point and they say, Brian, when's the time to sell? I said, well, I'll tell you the perfect time to sell. I even say this in the book. I'll tell you the exact perfect time to sell. I know exactly when I'm going to sell never going to sell. <laughs> like That's the point. I've never planned to sell my Bitcoin. I plan to buy more stuff with it than it can buy today. Like mm. that, if you look at it through that way, like I can buy X amount with Bitcoin today. I can buy more in the future with it. That's the only way I'm thinking about it. Um, and cause yeah, it, it starts to, when you say that to somebody, it starts to reframe like, Oh wow, that, that, that makes sense. And I, I love that old meme. I even included in the book. I don't know if you remember seeing that and, and it it's price prediction didn't really come true, but it's, it says like, in 2013, you could buy like a few groceries. It shows a shopping cart. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, in each year, like the shopping cart gets more and more full. And then by 2020 or 2021, you can buy a Lambo with a Bitcoin or whatever the, the meme shows. But it just shows this, this progression in value because we, we so often that denominator, that, that the thing that we denominate all of our, our life in, right? Where we exchange our, our time and our service and our energy and all these things has always been US dollars. And so, you, like you said, it's a paradigmatic shift where, People have a hard time understanding that. I even quote my, my, my own CPA in the book, and he gave me permission to do that. He has such a hard time with talking about Bitcoin as a unit, unit of account um, just because you don't pay your taxes in it. And I said, okay, I understand that. I understand. But well, I mean, there's more places that are allowing you to pay your taxes in Bitcoin. That's changing as we, as we speak. Um, but I said, why wouldn't you as an accountant fall in love with Bitcoin for accounting purposes. It's the most audited, most transparent ledger in in human history. So the people, the very people that are like coming after it for it not being a unit of account should be the ones that love it the most. And I think they actually will in time love it the most for its unit of account qualities. It's just so fair and transparent for them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, the other one, especially 
relevant in the last two years is, you know, people will say, well, how could it be a unit of account? It's so volatile. And Bitcoiners will somewhat tongue in cheek say, well, one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. And then the person will be like, yeah, that's not a real answer. It's like, well, hold on. Why isn't it a real answer? Because you, your presumption or your assertion is one USD equals one USD, but that's not true. I mean, what, what ratio, what are we using to establish a ratio here? Because if, like, as we all know, if you look at the monetary expansion of the USD over the last two years, it's something like 40 plus percent. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's been represented, you know, in hundred percent increases in prices in certain domains and 10% in others. But the punchline is, is your one USD equals one USD isn't valid either. You're not mm -hmm. comparing apples to apples in terms of purchasing power. So, you know, the USD expanded 40 plus percent, Bitcoin is down 60, whatever percent. So again, like that, that at a minimum, and that is obviously not the, the full story there, but at a minimum should, you know, give people a moment of pause to say, oh, like the thing that I'm seeing market value through is tremendously important. And mm -hmm. I, you have to be extremely careful of what you use to perceive market value because it's very difficult to see the corruption or and the false perceptions that that mm -hmm. corruption induces if you're not aware of it. Mm -hmm. And this is why we have, you know, the, the chaos that we have in markets today and why people, you know, people's savings are being diluted and siphoned away and why all this inflation, because people are looking everywhere else, but the prism through which they're interpreting market value. Yeah. And once they do that, like once they're able to create that space and step back for a second, I think that's when the journey of looking at the qualities or attributes of different monies historically and different monies currently available today, that's when that journey begins. Be like, well, what attributes do you think logically would create a better money, a better prism through which to determine market value, a better prism through which to establish exchange ratios between all things, right? And what would be more fair? Would it be more fair for you to give away your time and energy, i.e. work day in and day out for however many years, and you receive something that can easily without any, you know, uh, theft, violence, anything, just be siphoned away from you in a snap? Or do you think it's more fair that the work that you're able, the, the, the savings that you're able to accrue as a result of your work, you're able to keep in the, with the same degree of fidelity from the day you made it? Well, let's assume full issuance of Bitcoin. I, that's always been my yeah. assumption. I don't, consider like we're at 18 million right now. I consider the, the, the full of the, the full issuance is 21 million and whatever I'm able to accrue will that ratio between what I have and 21 million will always be the same. Mm -hmm. Does that seem more fair to you? You know, and of, mm -hmm. of course people will kind of maybe think on that for a bit and be stumped. I mean, cause it, it, it's so, it is so ingrained and it is so below the surface money is, you know, it really is an operating system. Everything else is above the surface. You know, you're complaining about meat prices. You're complaining about oil prices, house prices, everything else is out in front of you to be seen, mm -hmm. except the thing that's permitting you to see effectively. Yeah. And, um, so I, you know, f for those reasons, I, I can appreciate why, uh, it's difficult, but again, I, that's kind of why I think the one BTC equals one BTC is, is more than tongue in cheek, because what yeah. you're saying is, look, I've replaced the monetary prism that I'm seeing the world through. I've mm -hmm. replaced my unit of account. So what I'm concerned with is accumulating more Bitcoin. And as many of like, th that's what I'm, that's what I'm watching, not the volatile 
exchange USD exchange rate or fiat exchange rate of of whatever fiat to Bitcoin because I realize all the different you know influences that that can have and it's going to wax and wane as wane as a as this money monetizes from zero value to a purchasing power of whatever per sat or per Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, I do think that part of the issue with, uh, like if, if people get that, that's, that's great. But I think like, as you mentioned at the beginning, everyone wants to, uh, to create their own money. It's because it's the, like the greatest incentive in the world. And if you can do that and convince people that you've done it and create a nice story around it, then you stand, you stand to gain a lot of money, but you, you create this environment where now everything is seen as a speculative investment. And so instead of being seen as this paradigmatic perceptual shift in relation to value, it's now just seen as like all these different games you can play to get more of the initial unit. And I think for that reason, it makes it, it really muddies the water for newbies to think that like, well, why would all these other things exist if, you know, ultimately they were kind of bullshit and I was only supposed to be making this one change. And, you know, I actually be interesting. The, the question for you off the back of this rant, but when you sit down with the guys at, on the mats and you, you know, you're, you're sitting against the wall afterwards, how do you explain the distinction between all the exciting shit that they see and uh, like the hundred X's and this stuff and, you know, a, what is a really, well, it's kind of sexy to me, but for most people, changing out a new money, changing out an old money for a new money, like an upgrade to the monetary system is not particularly exciting to most yeah. people. It's not it, it, until they get it. Once they have like their, their light bulb moment, then guys won't stop talking about that. Right. <laughs> but we're, we're go. talking about that, 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 you know, they, they never heard about Bitcoin or crypto. Then they bought some doge and now they're in the game. Like that, that's those type of people. I tell people all the time, I actually bring this up in the book. Cause they say, um, you know, why can't I just create my own cryptocurrency? Because I can, you could literally take Bitcoin and copy its source code and have, you know, John Bitcoin 2.0 or whatever tomorrow. Like, why does Bitcoin, as we know at BTC, have value of 22,000 or 21,000, whatever it's at today, this market value at that price at that? But, you know, shouldn't John's Bitcoin have market market value as well. And the, the analogy I'll usually use for those guys is I'll say, you know what, you can go out and you can create your own language today, like create your new language. I'll create, you know, Brianisms, and I'm going to, you know, I can create verbs, adverbs, pronouns, everything, everything that, that I need to construct the language. I can have phonetics, sentence structure, everything about a language, but does my language have any value if I'm the only one using it? Right. It goes back to why does English have value. English as a language has value because it has network effect. You can go to almost any corner of the world and use English. Like you can use it for commerce. You can use it for relationships. You can use it to communicate with friends. You can use it, use it to communicate, to get directions. You can use English for so many things. My new language that I just created, it has a network of one and so there's, there's no value there, right? Mm-hmm. Bitcoin, and this goes back to the decentralization and the network effect of Bitcoin. Bitcoin has network effect. Bitcoin has decentralization. You can go to any corner of the world and use Bitcoin. I can't take, um, you know, my, my cryptocurrencies that are, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, number, number 227 on coin market cap. And I can't go around the world and use it to transact. I, the, the network effect of it 
is so small that it essentially makes it valueless. And so when I talk about it like that, that, that analogy right there for most people seems to click. And it's like, Hey, why try and reinvent the wheel? Why try and invent a new language and go through all the headaches of that? Like if you put enough time and effort into it, you might get a few people to adopt your new language. It's going to be painful. You're going to have to, you know, spend all your time doing that when there was a perfectly good language that you could have tapped into and used all that value. And you could have put your, you could have put your economic energy into using English and, and using it to create real value within that economy and stuff. So um, for most people that's, that tends to be that kind of the, the click light bulb moment for like, okay, like a network effect does, does mean something in terms of cryptocurrency. Totally. And I, th I think sometimes the refrain is then, well, how do you overcome the USD network effect? And so I, I would, would think the other part of that is that if you are going to assume that a new language or a new money is emerging, whether it's you doing the one who, you know, who's invented it or, or otherwise, you have to ask the question, what attributes does it have that make it or would make it more superior or more useful or more capable at discovering value, let's say, than the incumbent? And as, and the, the reason why that question is insanely relevant is because it speaks to the survivability, survivability of it, right? Like the risk is in, in all of these things, like, sure, you can make your own language and all that kind of stuff, but will it last? And as a result, how, uh, how much risk are you taking by devoting your time and energy and opportunity cost to it? Because if it ends up not lasting, then you're on the short end of that stick. So you want to be aligned with the one that has the greatest chance of lasting. And then of course, in order to determine that you have to look at the attri attributes and say, you know, network effects are definitely important, but you have to say, well, what other attributes about this thing are going to allow it the greatest chance at lasting the longest and therefore mitigating the degree of risk or loss mm -hmm. that I'm assuming by aligning myself with it, be it a language of money or, or something else. And I think, you know, that's, that's part of the reason why monies and languages, but even money even stronger converge on a dominant one, because you know one asserts its its ability to survive better than the rest, which is why you know part of the the argument or discussion against the validity of altcoins and other cryptocurrencies at least if we're talking about money, but then it begs the question like, well, if we're not talking about money, what, what are we really talking about with, with tokens and stuff, you know, and what are we talking about with, well, if you're trying to do something that doesn't need censorship resistance in the first place, and why do you need an economic incentive to make it worse uh, work? And why couldn't you just integrate the money that everybody wants anyways, you know, the more valued, the more dominant, the more likely to su succeed and survive money. Um, but it's 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 a lot to take on, and I think the the language uh, example is a good initial one for people to realize, you know, how much goes into making uh, one of these protocols dominant, whether it be a language protocol or a money protocol or what have you. Yeah, well, and you you talked about the opportunity cost that that me as the creator would have, right? If I'm putting all this time and effort into building this language out that people are using. I also have to think about the ethical concerns of all the other people's opportunity costs that I got to adopt my language and waste their time as well. Right. There's an ethical concern there. I think a lot of people don't Definitely. care about it, but there certainly is an ethical concern, but one of the things that I'll go to, yeah, like that, you're right. That is the next question. So the guys that are digging a little deeper will say, okay, I get the network effect side, but what qualities 
And then they'll, they'll bring that up. Well, like US dollar has a really good network effect. You're right. It has a really powerful network effect. Um, there's some cool historical precedents though for where uh, the qualities of Bitcoin would make it superior to the US dollar. So I mean, you and I understand Bitcoin's far superior to the US dollar, but we're talking to a new person, ground zero Bitcoin, you know, learning kind of thing. And so I go back to, I use the Weimar Germany example, because um, a lot of people, you know, if we took high school history, we, we remember Weimar Germany, anybody that studies Bitcoin remembers Weimar Germany, because we talk about the hyperinflation, but a lot of people don't know the details of it and how severe that was. But just in a nutshell, it was a four year cycle that hyperinflation happened in a really short period of time is right after, you know, basically towards the end of World War One, and then about four years after um, their entire and I got this from Jens Parsons' Dying of Money. I don't know if you've ever read that book. It's a really, really great book on, on the German hyperinflation and then the, the 1970s stagflation we had in the United States. Um, but he documents it in really, really good detail. Um, but the, the German uh, debt was 60 billion marks. So the German mark was their, was their the Reich mark was their, their currency at the time. That's the one that got hyperinflated. And this, this proves the point of why governments hyperinflate to get out of debt, but that's not even my point here. So they had a 60 billion mark debt. By the end of that four-year cycle, by the end of that hyperinflation, their smallest unit, their smallest bill was a 1 trillion mark note. So their entire debt was literally the equivalent to 60 cents. It was only 60% of their smallest note was their entire national debt. So it just proves how you can inflate away a debt. But my point as far as what qualities Bitcoin would have to be better than a, than a fiat currency in this circumstance, not a lot of people understand or know how the German economy fixed their hyperinflation. Um, so they had the Reichmark, which was the hyperinflating currency, but then they, they came out with another, it was a government issued one, but they, this is one of the few times that governments kept to this promise, but they said, we're going to come out with this other currency. It's a sister currency called the Rentenmark. We're going to run them side by side. And I forget what the exact number was, but we'll say, we'll call it hundred billion. We're only going to print hundred billion of these Rentenmarks. We promise we won't print anymore. So you can use either currency, the Reichmark, is inflating every single day. The Renton mark, we're not going to print any more of them. We have a scarce supply of that one. Well, the natural market forces, who's going to who's going to use the Reich mark? Everybody naturally went over to the scarce asset. That's actually called Gresham's law. There's an economic law called Gresham's law. People will hold on to the scarce asset and they'll spend or use the the non-scarce asset. And so when we're talking about Bitcoin versus the any kind of fiat, but in particular the U.S. dollar, because we're comparing, they both have a tremendous network effect. Well, why would Bitcoin be superior to U.S. dollar fiat? Is because of that scarcity principle. In time, Gresham's law says that people will gravitate. Natural market forces will gravitate towards scarce assets versus unlimited unlimited uh, debasing currencies. And so we've seen that. And so that Weimar Germany proves that point. And essentially every other fiat currency in history also proves that point. But, but the German one was particularly interesting because they made a fiat currency that was scarce. That usually doesn't happen. You usually don't see governments creating fiat currency. And eventually years later, they ended up debasing that one as well. But there was a period right. of time where they stuck to that and that fixed their inflation problem for, for a while. The cool thing about Bitcoin, there's nobody to go back on that promise. Bitcoin's going to hold to that promise 100 years from now, 50 years from now, 200 years from now. Um, so we don't have to trust that the that the consensus is going to change. Right. Yeah. And and here, kind of scarcity being used as a as a proxy or stand-in for purchasing power. Right. So you know, basically, 
the market will choose the money that's more likely or is retaining more of its purchasing power and spend the one that's losing it more rapidly, or if the former is not losing it at all, then, then losing it so that they can maximize their, their economic, you know, uh, potential or optionality and spend it before it becomes, you know, worth, worth even less. Yeah. It's, 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 I mean, one, it's remarkable that this experiment has been run so many times and, you know, it's not taught in the academic textbooks largely, and people don't really know about it, but it's like, it's not like we need to figure it out once more. I mean, it's happened so many times in so many places. And now, unfortunately, the experiment's being run on a global scale. And I think we all know what the inevitable destination of that experiment is, which is why we're all so grateful that something like Bitcoin exists. But yeah, and you know, to, when you're explaining it to these people, it's not just, uh, the additional scarcity. I mean, you know, as you mentioned about the trucker convoy, privacy and censorship, financial censorship um, has come to the fore over the last couple of years as well. And, you know, it could easily just be positioned like, well, one money, you know, the government or institutions. And as a result of that, the government is going to be able to know your movements, what you, what you buy, when you buy it, how much you spend it, where you send your money, everything about you. And another one, you're going to have a lot more privacy you know, in conjunction with being stolen from through inflation and all that kind of stuff. So which one would you prefer? And then I think a lot of people come to the point like, well, how is it being used? Like, what, why is it being used? And I think that's when you you sit them down for the serious discussion. It's like, well, you're being forced to use fiat currency, ultimately, you know, through a couple of moves on the chessboard through the barrel of a gun. It's It's by force. You don't have a choice. How do you feel about that? <laughs> you know, and then it's like there's there's uh, hesitation. There's like no, there's disbelief. You know, they go through the cycle of um, what is it? Not the addiction cycle, but you know where they go through oh, despair yeah. and disbelief yeah, yeah. and <laughs> anger. Grief and cycle. Then, grief cycle. Exactly. Yeah. There. Yeah. It is. There it is. Yeah. I mean, has that? Have, oh, yeah. what, how do those conversations go? I'm I'm assuming. Ba I'll, I'll, I haven't said this yet, but I'm assuming that you've written this book and both you've written it as a result of, and as a consequence of, you've had like a ton of these orange pilling discussions. Is that a fair yeah, assumption? Absolutely. Um, and even the guy that writes the forward of my book, it's just a, he's a world champion jujitsu guy too. I keep bringing it back to jujitsu, but yeah, I mean, you, who is it? You, you, I don't know if you would know him. His name's Eric Gooden. Um, IBJJF uh, competitor. Uh, there's jujitsu so big. Now people tell me all the time, Oh, do you know about this world champion? I'm like, I pay a lot of, of attention to jujitsu and guys are constantly, they're usually Brazilians. Usually the Brazilians, I can't remember their name. Cause they have like four right. names, but anyways, Eric Gooden's the guy's name. Um, but yeah, so yeah, you, you have these, these, these conversations. And I think a lot of people, they, uh, they, it's, um, what is that called? Like, it's like when you, you're, you want to remain willfully ignorant, it's a cognitive dissonance, right? Mm -hmm. There's this cognitive dissonance that happens often. I think people want to repress it. And so, um, they like the, you know what? It's just so much easier that I, I'm just going to buy a crypto and then speculate on it. I don't want to think about, you know, they initially, I don't want to think about all this complicated money stuff. I said, okay, that's fine. You don't have to right now, but uh, I want to be the pebble in your shoe. I want to be that thing that when this comes up and when you hear your friends, cause I mean, in the Bitcoins community, we've been talking about inflation being a thing years before COVID. Right. Mm -hmm. I think most people that, uh, heard me talking about in my circles that heard me talking about inflation in 2014, 2015, 2016, they thought I was crazy back then, but all those friends have then since come back around and said, okay, I want to learn more about Bitcoin because you were talking about inflation, like it was going to happen. Now 
I don't hear about anything but inflation. Um, so, so, so tell me more about it. So I think that when we're having these conversations with our friends and family, we need to be willing to be okay with them just kind of pushing this away because yeah, it's, it's like the movie, the matrix where there's people that want to stay in the matrix, right? That's even a part of the movie. There's people that want to get out and they want that freedom. That's the whole point of the, the red pill, blue pill thing. And that's why we call it the orange pill is like, are you willing to take this orange pill? Because with what I'm telling you right now comes a truth that is going to change the way that you see the world. And some people want that and they're willing to accept it. Um, And so, yeah, it it can go one way or the other. Um, But I think that uh, the positive thing about COVID is that people are thinking about the world in this way. Like they, they still, most people weren't connecting it to the money, um, but they all of a sudden saw that like, wow, why did I get fired from my job because I didn't take a vaccine? Or why did I, you know, why did I get fined on the airplane because I pulled my mask down to, to drink something and I, I didn't pull it back up fast enough or whatever. Right. I have a friend that he's literally not allowed on Delta Airlines anymore because he was taking his mask down too much. You know, it's like, it, why? There, there, people started starting to ask the question why. And so it inevitably leads them to the money. And I, and yeah, you're right. There's this grief cycle. And I think more than anything, the way I try to, the people that go that take the orange pill and have that grief cycle. And, you know, I try to bring them back to the hope side of it is like, Hey, the cool thing is these things were going to be a problem anyways. Like you said, we've had fiat currencies blow up, but on a national level, this blow up is going to be on a global level. Um, and so it's pretty cool. And I think it's almost like, um, it's almost like divine intervention <laughs> to some degree, um, as far as the, the time in history that we got a decentralized money for the first time ever. Um, and you could, you could argue that gold was, was, you know, like natural money or whatever, but even then governments still had to you know put their stamp on the coins and things like that. Um, it's, it's just interesting. And so there's actually a lot of hope, you know, I could, Imagine if we didn't have Bitcoin, we would be giving the same pitch to people and be like, by the way, the, the end of the story is we're all screwed. You're fucked. <laughs> yeah, we're just, <laughs> there's no getting out of this. Hey, there's there's hope at the end of the tunnel. Um, and uh, you know what, you, you brought up kind of CBDCs, you're, you're alluding to them uh, earlier. I, I have a section in the book where I talk about CB, CBDCs. I actually had one guy, I think he just jumped straight into that section and he didn't even read the whole section. But I, I talk it almost sounds like I'm talking positively about CBDCs. I'm not. I think that they're atrocious. I do think they're going to be the best, <laughs> the best advertisement ever for Bitcoin. So from a, from a, in a positive sense, I think they will be very positive for Bitcoin because they will help people see really how flawed the money is. But in that section, it sounds like I'm almost like, a, like congratulating on how awesome they're going to be. It's not because I think they're going to be great. I think it's important for people to understand the narrative that they're going to be pitched with. So for example, if we had CBDCs right now, the Federal Reserve, if they wanted to, could could kill inflation in an afternoon. They could press a button and they could tell everybody, you only have $30 to spend out of your bank account today. Mm. Um, and so they would have all sorts of tools in their toolbox. Think about um, in economics, we don't have really good metrics for, for uh surveying our GDP. Like we have a kind of an idea of what our gross domestic product here is in the United States, but we don't have programmatic money. If you had programmatic money, you could have incredible detail about your economy and you'd be able to, in a real way, study the economy in a much more robust way. So economists will gravitate. There will be a set of economists that are going to talk about uh, CBDCs as unlocking a prosperous future and all these things. CBDCs will be able to stimulate the economy 
you know, stimulate the economy faster because in an afternoon we can give everybody more money. We can limit money to, uh, you know, we can limit the velocity of currency in order to curb inflation and all sorts of things like that. So it's, it's one of those things where we need to understand what the positive narrative behind those things is going to be so that we can kind of get out in front of it and tell people like, Hey, <laughs> just so you know, these things are going to sound great. And you're going to, there's, there's, I wouldn't be surprised if when CBDC, CBDCs come out, the first people that sign up for a wallet are going to get a hundred bucks, you know, loaded or airdropped into their wallet. There's going to be all sorts of incentives to adopt CBDCs. Um, and we might all have to adopt it on some level again, maybe to pay our taxes or pay fines or whatever it happens to be. But people need to understand that there is a, there is an exit hatch. I think Michael Saylor said it, um, that, if you're in a room and all the oxygen's being sucked out, Bitcoin's like that mask that drops down out of the airplane that you can put some fresh oxygen on. Um, and so, yeah, it's important to understand, like we were talking about chess before, it's important to think a few steps ahead of like, what is the Federal Reserve? What is the US federal government going to be saying about CBDCs in order to get people to do it? Because yeah, I think a lot of people, the average person, might be a little bit nervous about well, government money you know, being programmed and they're gonna have you know, less privacy. They're going to say, well, yes, you might have less privacy, but guess what? Here's all these amazing things that are going to come with it. And yeah, we'll give you a hundred bucks. How does that sound? Okay, let's do it. You know, So, <laughs> so we, we want to make sure that we're, we're out ahead of those things. Like I said, the people that I've been able to win over most effectively about Bitcoin were the people that I was telling about inflation and Bitcoin three or four years ago. And they're like, wow, what you said has really come to fruition. I'm really seeing that. I kind of want to do that same thing right now talking about CBDCs, if we can get out in the Bitcoin community and tell people, here's what you're going to be hearing about CBDCs in a year or two from now. And then when they start to hear those things in the news, they're gonna be like, wow, those Bitcoin people, they were out ahead of this. Like maybe there's something that we, that we should be paying attention to from that community. Yeah, totally. I think that's spot on. And, you know, I think another reason why the last two years have been, you know, one of the benefits or silver linings has been, as you said, I mean, this, increased distrust of institutions that were formerly highly trusted. And now for most people, maybe that didn't, that didn't happen in relation to their money, but maybe it happened into the relation to their job, transportation, you know, whatever, an institution that put limitations on how that arrangement or the relationship had traditionally been, you know, constituted. And I think that helps because what we're discussing here with this paradigm shift, and as you said, like, it's really hard you know, your perception of the world brings together a lot of stuff and it's, you know, you, you, you make order out of the chaos of the world by piecing all these quote unquote known things together. And then that's, you know, your shield for going out into the world and engaging the world and trying to actualize, you know, your desires or, or what you're trying to accomplish. And when you introduce information that threatens that most often you get instead of like a logical discourse about the reasoning and the attributes and stuff, you just get emotional pushback because it's such an emotional thing to critique or question the very perceptual framework that someone's adopted to actually be who they are out in the mm -hmm. world. So like, mm -hmm. I get it. It's a lot, but I think that conversation becomes a lot easier in the context of the last two years where people are naturally just being like, Oh, maybe, maybe I didn't have, the right understanding of XYZ institution or relationship with government or, you know, money or any of that kind of stuff. And then, you know, that certainly makes the Bitcoin discussion a lot easier to, to, to be had. And I, you know, of course, central or CBDCs are like a, 
a top-down central planner's dream, you know, that, that this is, will allow for complete control. And I think over, over time, of course, the a Bitcoin parallel system and economy is developing and will continue to develop. And by virtue of the added degree of freedom and the added capacity for wealth generation and value signaling and pristine prices and all that stuff, it's just going to so greatly outcompete the former. And so that'll probably happen in pockets and kind of under the surface initially, and then it'll become more and more apparent over time. But of course, like you said, a bunch of people are going to be hoodwinked into the CBDCs because most people just don't consider these things and they'll probably refuse to even under fairly dire circumstances. I mean, because probably to me and you and a lot of Bitcoiners, dire circumstances happened like decades ago. It's like, really? Like you're, you're, you're going to be forced to use a money that just, it, it's just, it's got a trap door built in. They can steal from you as much as they want. And maybe they've been like, they've only been stealing, you know, 10 or 15%, you know, because they've been feeling generous, but now that they're in a pinch, they're, they're stealing 40 and 50 and all the institutions that you use to use that money are tracking your information and your data and selling it and using it and losing it and creating all these, you know, hazards, moral and otherwise for you. And so I think a lot of us would be like the, the point of, of, uh, no return or like the, the, the line in the sand has been crossed a long time ago, mm -hmm. but for some people, I mean, I, I do wonder like, what would the line in the sand look like? I mean, mm -hmm. your, your entire financial life is completely, controlled in every single capacity. You can be shut off in a moment's notice. Everything is surveilled, all that stuff. And, and like a huge portion, at, at least for now, would, would still put up with that because they put up with that in a more dilute form for the last several decades. And this is why I think like, I think it's important to discuss the, the detrimental effects of these new top-down technologies that are being developed, but it's far more uh, productive to amplify the beneficial effects of people in Bitcoin and what the Bitcoin economy mm. is producing because people don't want to hear bad news. They want to, they want to see beauty and vibrance and ways in which their life can be made better. And that's what Bitcoin is, right? Mm. Like adopting Bitcoin as your unit of account, engaging in Bitcoin, stacking sats, engaging with other people that are doing the same, that see the same value and value you know, system within Bitcoin. Th those are the things that genuinely make your life better. And like, that's a people, you don't even have to uh, like try to orange pill people with that regard. They'll just look at these groups or even look at you right. and be like, why is he so, the, the world's kind of going crazy and he's so calm and like pursuing things that he finds meaningful and he's happy and he's healthy. Right. Like what's going on? And I think that is going to end up being a far stronger incentive or, you know, signal to people than the doom and gloom message because the doom and gloom message has been around forever. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's always been someone talking about all the crazy conspiracies that go on in the world and many of which are probably true in, in, in some respect, right? Yeah. Like, you know, how controlled people are and who controls the world and all the garbage you're eating and injecting yeah. and watching. There's and no listening. hope in that. Right. They're right. Not really, yeah. yeah. You're just like, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't, maybe even if I subconsciously think you're right, I don't even want to know it because yeah. that's going to invite a lot of darkness into my life. And I don't need any more darkness. Yeah. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm, things are already a bit <laughs> despair. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit sad already, so I don't need that shit. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's funny. Well, that's, I, I, I talk a bit in, in the book about that. Yeah. I think there's going to be things that you can do. Um, I mean, that's why I called it Bitcoin evangelism. Cause I see so many parallels between, 
um, as a Christian, you know, I'm trying, you know, out there trying to tell people about my faith and that sort of thing. And so I see parallels in that where, like you said, there were, there's preachers out there. There's Christian preachers that are only preaching hellfire and brimstone, right? right? right. How many of those yeah. people? And so I, there's, there's a lot of correlations between Bitcoin language and unsuccessful Christian language that people have used. So it's like, we could just go back and look at the church. Like when, when was the church growing and what were they doing in terms of their evangelism when they were like growing in number and what times of their, their existence were they shrinking in number? And you can see like, yeah, there's, there's uh, and that's awesome. That's almost why I try to sit, stay soft on the, on altcoins to some degree. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll tell somebody like in, like in, in Christian, you know, in Christianity, Jesus says he's the only way. And so Christianity says, okay, all other religions are actually not real. And those will lead you to hell. That's a tough truth. And so if, as a Christian, if I'm going to invite people to church, like I also have to be soft to my Muslim friend, right? Like I, 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 I want to speak truth to him because I think he's wrong, but at the same time, I need to act towards him in a way. If I believe that, like, I want to bring him to the truth so that he can go to heaven. I need to be soft towards him. And I, and so bringing that back, I think that's how Bitcoiners ought to be, right? We have toxic Bitcoiners. We have Bitcoin maxis that are toxic. And those are the kind of, those are like Christians that are toxic. We've all met Christians that are like, dude, I want nothing to do with church because I don't want to be like you, like you're a horrible human being, you know? And because they, they keep telling me how wrong I am. They keep, they basically, basically beat me over the head with the Bible type of thing. And then there's other Christians that are very friendly and welcoming. And it's like, that's, that's kind of the tone that I take with the book is like, okay, I, I get where altcoins are coming from. And I think that there's some interesting speculative tech, like Ethereum and smart contracts. I, you know what I think is a Bitcoin, you know, even as a Bitcoin maxi, you should almost like root for Ethereum to move fast and break things. Because if they build something that is really cool, like maybe we could put that in RSK and build it on Bitcoin, right? We can use them as like the R and D department for anything that, that could eventually someday be built with smart contracts and decentralized, you know, an actual truly decentralized platform on top of Bitcoin. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's some, there's some interesting, like I said, just interesting analogies between faith and, and spreading the word of Bitcoin. Like you said, there's, there's people that'll tell you hell, hellfire and brimstone, the world's going to hell um, in terms of, of Bitcoin, but at least we have a solution with Bitcoin. There's like this really hopeful enlightening message. And, you know, how did people adopt the internet? People adopted the internet just by using it. Like my mom, she didn't sit down in 1994 and start to like read about HTTP or something like that. Like she, she just sent an email, you know? And so I, if, if anybody wants to hack and doesn't want to buy my book, but they want to orange pill their friends, literally just have your friend sit down with your friend, download like wallet of Satoshi or blue wallet or any kind of Bitcoin lightning wallet, have them download the app for free and then send them a hundred sats and then tell them to send their friends 50 of those sats, you know, like just sitting down and using this technology. As soon as somebody sees, like, I just transferred value immediately. And then you pair that with, you tell the person like, Hey, now you have full control over your money. Like sometimes you get those light bulb moments and it's like this very positive thing, right? You sat down, you showed them. And it's like, now, can you imagine if you were able to do this with, with your, with your, your fiat currency, like that would be amazing. Right. And like, that's what Bitcoin promises to be all the things that we think money should be able to do, but we don't realize that we can't do it. Like I, I took a bunch of cash out the other day. I was going to go buy an RV. I took out, you know, like $18,000 in cash to go buy something. And I had to fill out a bunch of paperwork. I had to ask, not only tell my bank teller what I was doing with it. I had to tell the manager of the bank, what I was doing with the money. I was just like, I mean, like, 
go F yourself. You know, like yeah. I, it's my money. Why do I have to do that? But when you sit down with somebody with a lightning wand and you send value immediately, it's, it's like this really hopeful and optimistic message. Totally. Totally. It's like, you know, that Jack Nicholson gif where he's like smiling and nodding, you know, his head, you like when you, when you sit someone down and they see a trend, cause like the theoretical arguments for Bitcoin, you could talk about them until you're blue in the face. What people really need to do is use it. Right. And when they do, you, I totally agree. Like there's this thing that goes on. It's like, wow, all those, I didn't have to do all those things that I previously had to do in order to send my own money. Right. And so the light bulbs go off and, uh, and people start going down the rabbit hole. And, you know, in, in response to the altcoin stuff, my, my, and it's kind of, you know, again, the, the religious analogies abound, but, um, I feel like one of the most fundamental faiths that maybe you could have is that the truth will be revealed through the course of time or in due time or in the end. And maybe whether that's religious truths or whether that's economic truths or whatever. And so like, I hate all the crypto altcoin bullshit. There's so many scams, so many people get burned, uh, so many, un so much unethical behavior. I don't think it, it appreciates, um, you know, uh, monetary attributes and, and how this is likely to play out. But one, I have to admit, I don't know for certain the future, obviously. So like, even though I'm, a Bitcoin maximalist and extremely bullish on Bitcoin. I don't touch anything else. I don't know that that's the right move. I'm, I'm taking some degree of risk. I've, I've done my best to, you know, use the best logic and reason to come to it, but I have to allow that I may be wrong. And so at least for that reason alone, the fact that there are other experiments being run, I guess I have to begrudgingly admit like is possibly a good thing, but more than that, my, I, I'm kind of at peace with it because I I know or my faith is that truth will emerge. And if if this is the meth messy process that has to take place for truth to emerge, you know, my friend Gigi always uses the term rectification. Like if there's got to be a lot of rectification that, to happen so that people come to a truth that that works, you know, that or is it the maximum form of truth that's available in whatever domain? Then that's just kind of the nature of the beast, right? Like how how could it be otherwise? You kind of need all these failures to prove yeah, yeah. the truth. And again, that, that I think that that um, is applicable to many domains of life, not just yeah. the economic or monetary. And so, you know, to the extent that I can um, help avoid the pain that's associated with that, for, especially for people that are close to me, like I, yeah. I do try to do that, but I'm not on a, I'm not one of the crusaders um, that tries to like use my platform to do that because it's just not all that uh, interesting to me. Yeah. But to your point about, you know, the, the people that beat people over the head with the Bible and hell and brimstone to try to kind of convince them of the validity of the belief system or their, the, the, the corollary in like Bitcoin maximalism. First of all, I know a lot of people that have been saved by that approach. So I can't, I certainly can't mm -hmm. dis discount it entirely. Um, and, you know, like all, everyone communicates in different ways. Everyone <laughs> espouses the benefits of certain things. Like s some people do genuinely like respond and wake up when you tell them how the monetary system works. They're like, yeah. what? Like, I just yeah. never considered that. that's fucking terrifying. I'm, yeah. I'm like, I'm, or like the, uh, you know, someone who's fleeing a bad situation, you tell them that, you know, Bitcoin can help them out in some way. And, you know, that incentive, maybe they gravitate, gravitate to it for that reason. So mm -hmm. I don't, um, 
I'm happy with all the crazy, wonderful, <laughs> toxic stuff that goes on because I just see it as the way this is playing out. Like sure. this, this thing is inspiring each of us to act in a particular way, to speak in a particular way, to evangelize in a particular way. And again, back to the, the faith about the truth. If what we're dancing around here is some form of truth, even an unprecedented form, in, at least in the interpersonal or economic realm that pre pre we've never, human consciousness has never really interacted with before, has any experience with, then I'm kind of happy to sit back and let it emerge through all the messiness, you know, because I think a part, one of the conceits or, um, you know, pitfalls of the central planning collectivist sort of mindset is that everything can be known and you can account mm -hmm. for everything. And that's how you generate the utopia. It's like, mm -hmm. we're accounting for these and these and these, and this is good and this is bad. And this is how it should be done. And this is how the resources should be allocated. And what we're going to get afterwards is the utopia. And what you get is the exact opposite. You get the dystopia, you get the collapse, you get the catastrophe. Whereas if you allow truth to emerge in a organic way, then not only do I think you get the best approximation of that truth through the course of time, but you get it in a manner that's sustainable because every little bit along the way is acting in reference to that and integrating it to the extent that it's beneficial. And if it is, it propagates. And so I, you know, I love the messiness of it all. And yeah. the final point on this one is we're talking about the strongest incentive for people being that not the academic theoretical stuff, but looking at other people, you know, whether it's online or in their direct life and being like, man, how the fuck are they dealing with all this stuff so well? Mm -hmm. And I do think it's the case. Mm -hmm. Like if you wind up on Bitcoin, Twitter, especially, and you see all these people like kind of crazy and intense and weird, but also kind of smart, but if nothing else positive and like yeah. kind of happy and having a, a laugh about it all, it makes you think like, how are they so, how are they having that attitude in the backdrop mm -hmm. of what's going on in the world? And so the craziness can can act as just a strong incentive to pursue, yeah. you know, greater understanding of what the fuck right. is going on here. People you know? people are attracted to the principled nature of Bitcoin maxis. For well, that sure. that too, yeah, uh, yeah. I think I think there is, yeah. So I I guess I, for clarity's sake, I would I would never talk softly probably towards uh, of altcoins to somebody that has no understanding. Like if I'm starting at square one, I'm talking Bitcoin, and but I'm talking what I was talking about earlier was being soft towards the guy that comes in and all he owns is Dogecoin or all he owns is Shiba Inu, that sort right. of thing. Not like, call okay, him a fucking idiot. And, yeah. You know, yeah. Like, yeah. Hey bro, like, let me tell you, like, here's, here's what we're doing. You know, that sort of thing. But it, it's funny. I mean, yeah, you're talking about the, the problem with, with centralization. We know that. I mean, Bitcoiners know that, but it's just, we're seeing that in real time. And it's so clear, like chairman Powell gives a speech the other day. It wasn't even policy. Like he, you know, they're doing policy, they're doing rate, <laughs> rate hikes, but the market, the stock market crashed like a trillion dollars in value minutes after one guy's speech. Like if that's not the epitome of how wrong a centrally planned government is or a centrally planned economy. I mean, what, like what type of market force happens that a guy says something and then a trillion dollars is gone. That, that absolutely makes no sense. Um, but Dude, they're yeah. gonna they're, they're gonna look back on our time, and they're just gonna like a fourth grader is gonna be like, how the fuck did they let things go this far? Like a group of how many people? How many people are in the FOMC? Like eight, eight people, four, five 12. people, I, I, whatever. Well, FOMC? No, I was thinking, yeah, the, the uh, yeah, FOMC is eight, I think. So eight people out of eight billion, or a little bit less, uh, 
determine the cost of capital for the world. Like just whatever. They woke up on one side of the bed. They had some data to look at. They have their own vision of how things should be and what they want to, you know, foster. And they just be like, this is the cost of capital, irrespective of the trill infinite number of interactions that are supposed to generate that optimal equilibrium of the cost of capital between savers and, and investors and risk takers. Nope. Just eight people in a room deciding that. I mean, it like, it's so asinine, but the, the, the flip side of that is it gives me so much hope that once we have a, a genuine free market and people are able to retain the fruits of their labor and they're able to express their wants and desires absent distortion, man, like I think it's going to produce an emergent uh, truth and emergent value and, mm. and meaning and all the different things that that means for people's personal lives, not just, you know, goods and services in the mm. market. That's going to be, well, again, unprecedented, like, and that's why, you know, we get so excited about the Bitcoin Renaissance, but the, you know, and, and you mentioned the, or in addition to the absurdity there, I saw today that, that Ursula lady, she's like the head of the EU, maybe, I guess, um, oh, okay. or maybe not the head of, she's some, some big up in that, the yeah. EU. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the big genius plan was, oh, we're going to cap energy producer profits and we're going to that's going to give us like 120 billion euro windfall. And we'll use that windfall to, you know, ease the pain of people that are paying more for primarily energy, but you know, other things, man, how come nobody thought of this before? What a <laughs> yeah. brilliant idea. <laughs> it's just, oh, it's so absurdity. And it's like yeah, that person's exactly. never run a business before. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's absurd. And, and you know, it's a, why did, why did Marxism and this, concept of centrally planned governments or centrally planned even democracies why did that emerge right after the industrial revolution it's like it emerged because it was like the the arrogance of humanity i think the term that they that they use is called an escata it means like humanity's reached its highest its pinnacle like we we we're going to use technology to remove all the work in society because you think about it a factory used to just be like 10,000 guys assembling parts. Right. And then all of a sudden you have a machine that comes along and only, you only need like 10 guys in the factory because the machine's doing all the other work. So the Marxist and the central planners were thinking, wow, technology is going to completely revolutionize everything. People won't need to work. We can centrally plan everything because technology is going to be so efficient. Yada, yada, yada. That's why Marxism emerged was it was on the back of technology. We saw after Marxism was tried that it didn't work out. And people kind of unanimously agreed to that over the last, you know, century or so. It was like that was being proven in real time. But then you had people that were still pushing for it. And they said, OK, here we are. Flash forward to 2022. OK, the Industrial Revolution, that technology at that time looks, you know, silly. Like that wasn't very, very impressive technology. But today we have artificial intelligence. We have computer algorithms. Think of all the effective central planning we can do because of, of computers and technology and artificial intelligence. So now you see this press for Marxism, you, you see this press for central planning again because of the emergence of technology. And people think we're at an eschaton again. People think we're at the highest point of human civilization. And so that's why we're seeing the rise in central planning and people thinking that this time it's different because they, they, they thought after the industrial revolution, like you said, why have we seen this experiment a bunch of times? Well, the industrial revolution, after the industrial revolution, they said, 
well, yeah, we've seen this happen a few times, but we have technology now that's going to make it different this time. Okay, that failed. Now here we are in 2022. Well, why are we doing the centrally planned thing again? Like we've had this experiment and it's failed. Well, no, but the central planners say it's different this time because we have technology on our side. And I mean, historically, that's probably bound to fail again. And you've named a bunch of reasons why it will. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. Give me one second. I got a doorbell yeah. happening. Oh, dang. Okay. All right. I'm back. All right. You get your maintenance, uh, maintenance guy uh, here a bit early. So we'll uh, okay. have to shut it down shortly. But no, I, I totally agree. And that's, uh, I guess that's part of the reason, you know, we were speculating before why this, these issues continue to recur. And part of it is because some elements of the circumstance change. And if you don't parse out the circumstance from the principle, then you're bound to uh, repeat the, the mistake as the circumstances change. Right. And, and, and you could apply this not to just to technology, but government governance in various ways. I mean, like the uh, the whole attack on on freedoms that basically happened all around the world as a result of covid. I mean, like the principles that at least some countries have attempted to enshrine in their founding documents were hard was hard fought wisdom over the course of mm -hmm. millennia uh, of like the things that you must make sure you maintain and uphold lest you sow the seeds of your own destruction, right? Lest you think that, oh, they're not mm -hmm. applicable anymore. Times have changed. People are different, whatever, whatever. No, these things don't violate and, and you got a chance at surviving. If you violate mm -hmm. them, you're probably going to destroy yourselves. And it was just amazing to me to watch. Not only, I mean, like not only that they were violated because they clearly were, but how little discourse there was around them I mean, it's, it wasn't permitted, right? Like you're, you're some yeah. sort of wacko if you wanted to even have those discussions. And, and as a result, you know, what that revealed about the degree of one, the lack of respect for how they were established, how that wisdom had, had come about and, and were established. And the, just the abject arrogance and hubris of everyone of assuming that all of this just works and we're not out at each other's throats and all that kind of stuff, just because. Just because here we are at this point in history and the big problems are solved now and we don't have to worry about uh, those, those problems that like were our undoing in the past. I mean, it's it's yeah. so arrogant. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Well, yeah, here in California, there, there was a law or a bill. I, I believe it was just passed. I think the governor signed it. Um, if not, it, it passed uh, the or the, the assembly. Um, so it's, it's, it's deep into the process right now, but it doctors can be, they can get their, their medical license revoked here in California. If they talk to their patients in a way that is counter to the scientific consensus, <laughs> it's like the craziest at the same time, when all of our, you know, the, the CDC and all these different agencies are, are literally going on like a PR thing of like, yeah, we kind of got it wrong. Like, let, let us get your trust back type of thing. At the same time that they're saying we got it wrong. They're also saying, well, okay. Yes, we got it wrong, but we're going to pass bills that if your doctor says anything counter to consensus, it's like it begs a bunch of questions. It's like, well, how do you achieve consensus when there's no discourse, first of all? Right. Yeah. And then second, you know, like, how do you how do you just show everybody you just messed up? And then you're you're passing a bill that says, well, if we if we do this again, like you have to listen next time kind of thing. So anyways, all sorts of fun things happening in California on that front. <laughs> and, you know, again, Bitcoin fixes this because, you know, a lot of people don't draw the the line between fiat and all this stuff. Uh, Bitcoiners obviously do, but, you know, people outside our world don't. But, you know, when when the government can just turn you off at the click of a button and when as a result of that 
that extreme power and of course their ability to siphon off wealth and become these giant monoliths, you know, parasites on, on the people effectively, then all the institutions are beholden to them as well. They, you you got to cozy up because that is such an extreme form of power and they can turn you off as well, whether you're a medical mm -hmm. board, a school board, a, a, an, a scientific or, you know, corporate institution of whatever kind, the power that they hold, you know, is exerted over you as well. So you've got to play ball as well. And what you get is just mm -hmm. the, the, both the, the malice and the incompetence of that monolith being pushed all the way down. Mm. And as a result of trying to maintain control, you know, well, sorry, you get with people trying to live their own lives, make their own decisions, come to their own conclusions, but the necessity for that, you know, the, the maintenance of the power of that top-down thing and the control that it exerts, well, of course you get this friction where, you know, from bottom up, people are trying to be free and determine things for themselves. And the incentive of the top-down thing is to, to increasingly tighten the grip of control. And mm. I, I think that is, you won't resolve it entirely uh, as long as you have a form of, of collective governance like that uh, with a money like Bitcoin. But I think most yeah. people far underestimate how much it will be resolved when people can't so easily be shut off, when they're more independent, when they're more sovereign, yeah. and when, as a result of their own sovereignty, those institutions can't gain that degree of un unfair, uh, undeserved power and influence. Yeah, that's a great point. So uh, this weekend, I'm going to this thing called the Beef Initiative. I don't know if you heard about Texas totally. Slim. He had a virus. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know, um, this, this, you fix the money. Well. Their event is about, you know, beef. It's a whole model is getting it directly to the consumers, right? And these, these farms that are these independent, independent decentralized farms, they're getting shut down. I think it was Miller's farm recently got shut down by the, uh, the USDA really kind of for no reason. Like they, they were this arbitrary shutdown and they got these major conglomerates that they can just shut off one switch and, and, you know, to shut down this network. And so anyways, these, these farmers or these, these ranchers, they have a, a conference that it's 50% of the, what they're talking about is beef and 50% of what they're talking about is Bitcoin, because they're essentially saying the government is shutting us down right now. If we want to continue to have an economy where we can sell our products, we need to decentralize money. We need them. Like you said, we need a way that they can't shut us off because how do you shut everybody off? Like, like there's some businesses, like if you were going to shut you know, people down, you have to shut people off in different ways. Money's the one way where you can shut every single person off, right? Um, you could, you can censor people off of social media. That's one way to shut somebody down. You can censor, censor people from their work, but as soon as you censor somebody's money, you're censoring every element of their life. So money's the, the most, it's the backstop that we have as, as individual freedoms. Um, Anthony Pompliano, I quote him in my book. He says, if you don't have the freedom to transact, then you don't have freedom. And it's like, that's just such a, it distilled down to such this perfect point. Yeah. If you, the founding fathers didn't have the ability, like you said, they had thousands of years of wisdom put into the constitution, but there was no mechanism to have this technological backstop of money, right? All the founding fathers were very much against fiat currencies. Like I quote a lot of the founding fathers in my book, they were against central banks. They were against fiat currencies because they understood that that could be the undoing of this constitutional republic, checks and balances, democracy that they, that they had 
created. Um, and they were right. Like that has been the undoing of this like brilliant system that they had. There's, there's these really centralized points to the system um, that people could undo their brilliant work. So I think the founding fathers would, would have written extensively about Bitcoin as yeah. part of the backstop for securing our freedom. I couldn't agree more with that. And I, I love to see the initiatives um, like the beef initiative. I think that's going to happen in a variety of different industries and product lines and stuff. People are going to see the beneficial confluence or convergence that, that Bitcoin can, can bring to whatever their thing is. And uh, it's going to keep happening. And, and again, I think that's how the parallel system that we often, well, that's how the parallel system emerges. And that's how the parallel system ultimately comes mm -hmm. The system and um you know so i i think that's awesome and i i hope people out there continue to do uh initiatives like that uh, i hate to do this man because i'm sure we could talk for ages but i gotta bounce um so final question for you is i know this is like a super casual fan question but who you got in the super fight on sunday between uh gordon ryan and galval man um everybody in my gym is like uh, they're, they're, they're purists. So they're like Galval, but dude, Gordon Ryan, you got to love to hate him. I can't stand hearing him talk, but he's so good for the sport of jujitsu <laughs> because he brings eyeballs in. So I just, it's like Conor McGregor, man. I, you, it's like a car wreck. You just can't, you just watch it. Like I, it, it makes jujitsu very exciting because jujitsu to guys like you and me, we could sit and watch a no time limit match and just be like enthralled. Because, oh my gosh. He like, you know, he got, you know, he got an underhook or something like that. But with Gordon Ryan, you're watching a little bit more than just uh, you know underhooks and positions. You're watching kind of this uh, this 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 phenom within the sport. So I, I'm gonna have to say I got Gordon Ryan on this one. I think he's gonna get out wrestled. I think he's gonna get out wrestled, but I think he's probably gonna get a sub. Yeah, I kind of lean that way as well. The only my biggest gripe with Gordon Ryan is that I'm guessing like Roger Veras throwing a bunch of money at jujitsu guys because he's such a jujitsu guy himself and. Gordon has come yeah. out with B, a B cash logo on his back on some of his uh, matches. Oh, and I'm man. like, it's Bitcoin and jujitsu. It's such a nice, you know, yeah. as we said at the beginning, it's such a good, you know, crossover. And instead, you know, you have one of the, <laughs> one of the worst shit coins of all time on the back of one of the greatest <laughs> yeah. of all time. It just seems, it seems right. Wrong, but oh. that'll be fixed oh. in the course yeah, of time. So like everything, I suppose. Yeah. Um, Brian, yeah. so the book is evangelizing Bitcoin available on, or sorry, you, you did the audible recording today. When will that be available on mm -hmm. like so to audible should be up next. Yeah. Audible should be up next week. And, uh, so the, the, e the Kindle book, the, the physical book is all available on Amazon. It's uh, Bitcoin evangelism. And, uh, I hid a Bitcoin wallet inside of the book. So if you find the 12 word seed phrase, you can just plug those into a Bitcoin wallet and there's like $700 worth of Bitcoin. It's 3.1 million Satoshis that are hidden in the book. So there's a little Easter egg hunt when you're reading the book, nobody's found them. I had one guy or a couple guys message me. They found like eight of the 12 words so far. Um, and periodically on my, on my Twitter, I uh, drop some hints every once in a while. If people are having a hard time finding them. That's awesome. Everyone loves a little Bitcoin Easter egg. Um, Brian, thanks again for the chat and the time and uh, keep in touch. We'll do this again sometime. Thanks, John. Appreciate it, man. All right. Cheers, brother. See ya. Cheers.
Oh, 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 oh.